My name is Ahmad. Hi, my name is Steve. And this is Exploration Radio, a podcast focusing on the past, present, and the future of exploration. Welcome to Exploration Radio, Justin. Thanks, Ahmad. Great to be here. I guess the reason why we wanted to have you on the podcast today is that we wanted to cover this theme around mining 4.0 or how mining is going to change. It's a motherhood statement that covers a lot of things like automation, crowdsourcing, digitalization, all of these things. And I guess we wanted to go through some of those topics in a little bit of a more nuanced way, because I think where you sit in the stuff that you do, I think you have uh, quite a nice perspective on what's happening in this space. So let's start off by getting a little bit of background about yourself. Sure. So you've been involved in the entrepreneur space for a while. You had a startup or you still have one? Still have notionally, yeah. Before coming to Perth, in fact, I ran a couple of other businesses. So I have run a cafe bar in the Czech Republic. I started a music production company in Alaska. And um, Alaska, the real hotbed for uh, oh, yeah, music. Gr- great, uh, huge market. When we went on a road trip, one of our biggest concerts, total sellout, was 12 people. That was fantastic. <laughs> the tiny rural town, McCarthy, Alaska. Being on the other side of a bridge, they have to carry in all the sound equipment. It's also famous for, I think, hosting more murders than there are people that actually live there year-round. It had two mass murders in this tiny little town of Alaska. That's another story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I, I started a company called Synaptor about eight years ago now to predict workplace accidents before they happen. So we built mobile web and predictive safety tools for mining, oil and gas, and construction companies. Still run that business, but it looks a lot different now. So that was an interesting space to get in, startup in kind of health and safety. Mm. Overall, the industry seems to have an aversion to technology in most places. In something as high value as health and safety, is it any different? Uh, There was, I think, a lot of interest in talking about new solutions and people willing to share what they were learning across companies in health and safety, which was a positive thing. But yes, it was still very, very difficult to talk to people about adopting new tech. What were some of the root causes? Is it just like your technology was creating wholesale changes or? Honestly, Ahmad, I would would love to tell you that it was actually about changing human behavior and process and how hard that is in adopting new technology. But in actual fact, eight years ago when I started that, the industry still had blanket prohibitions on using mobile devices in operational workplaces. So we ended up having to tell people about existing solutions for locking down mobiles in the workplace and, in fact, probably (laughs) sold more of those solutions than our own. So I think part of it was timing. Part of it was we got some things wrong. And part of it was a resistance to adopting change, although I can't lay blame for that at at the foot of industry. People were interested in things. They genuinely wanted to see change. But that that change can be hard. I want to talk about this concept that when you're a startup, you know, you obviously have a product that you're selling, that you're providing the industry. Now, when you look back, do you think that the way that you presented the product, you would do it differently now? I guess I debate this thing that I think the mining industry is good at, I think, accepting technology when it's not like point solutions, because if there's any level of integration mm. on their end, I think it's too tough. I think that's true. We lost one large sale because we only solved two out of 10 of the problems, we solved them better than anything else in the market. So we solved those two problems the best ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the rest, the other eight, we didn't solve at all. And that company decided to go with something that solved all of them, but poorly. So we saw that that one time. But I I think to your point about startups and and having a product, what I would have done differently is actually not build that product. Hard to say because 
I think some of the confidence of actually learning how to have those conversations and learn what industry needs comes from having uh, thought deeply about something often through the process of building a product. But one of the key mistakes that I made in that business, I think, was building too much before trying to sell it. So I would have learned uh, okay. some lessons a lot earlier, engaging the market first about the problem and becoming passionate about the problem rather than becoming passionate about my particular solution to the problem. Yeah, okay. So is it the difference between like a technology push versus a technology pull? Like did you try to push something that the industry wasn't ready for? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if they weren't ready for it. I mean, I, hard to say, right? I think that there were competitors that started around the same time that are doing well. So we clearly did some things differently and, and wrong. I think industry was ready for solutions, new solutions. We didn't have a problem talking to people about it. So we could get meetings, we could talk to people about what we were doing. And we this was an evolution, right? We were applying technology in an area where human services were in place before paper in some cases, right? So yeah, the, yeah, the problems were well known, the savings were clear, the opportunity was pretty easy to articulate to people. We had, I think, very good credibility in the marketplace. But the product problem fit wasn't exact. Yeah. So the market, some of the questions you were asking about was market fit. Right? Was the market ready? Yeah, that's Were they I'm... interested in solving that problem? So they knew they had the problem. They were ready to at least entertain different solutions. Everybody found it easy to waste my time having meetings. But whether the product and the problem were the right fit for each other is, an, is probably another question. We see other products doing particularly well now. And I think yeah. some of them probably built less product up the front and kind of built in partnership with some of their early customers as they went. Ah, okay. I do like your honesty in that saying that, you know, you didn't really get things right, because I think that's a perspective that we don't often get in this space, because the data actually suggests that most startup founders do get things wrong, right? Absolutely. I mean, the, the statistics are pretty bad, right? Yeah, that's right. So it's interesting that now when you look back, you don't necessarily put the blame all on the industry because I think that is a common kind of concern that, you know, like I had the best product, but the Muppets on the other side didn't see it. But there's obviously oh, a two-way yeah. street in that. Look, I mean, I think when you're talking about, about founders, the role of a startup is to learn, is to mm -hmm. learn quickly and learn the lessons you need to learn before you go out of business, essentially. Yeah. Uh, it's how much runway do you have to learn before you die often. And I think having interacted with some founders that are struggling to take signals from the market. I've seen that, and I think that that can be a, a real problem for them, right? I think there's this delicate balancing act, right? I think we fetishize entrepreneurs in particular for holding a view of the future strongly or something like that, right? Yep. We talk about these visionary tech founders, often in retrospect, of course. Yep. And we talk about them as seeing something that nobody else did and sticking firmly to that vision of the future in the face of great obstacles. And those are great hero stories. There's some of that, right? In the work that we do, we are, we are trying to be where the puck is going to be in the future. Yep. But we can't only be guided by that and not pay attention to what the market tells us, what our stakeholders tell us. I think that those things are absolutely key signals. And we get, we get some of that wrong, right? Or we get our timing wrong. Sometimes you're right, but the timing's wrong. That's wrong, right? That still equates to death. So I think that, that listening is a very key skill to entrepreneurship. Yeah, okay. 
So the concept of feedback. So as a entrepreneur, a startup founder, I guess the importance of feedback would be pretty important. Yeah, but the, again, like the balance is not that your customer says do this and then you do that. That that's a services company, and startup founders have a tricky problem because they've got to walk this fine line between taking that feedback, maintaining some kind of vision, some hypothesis about the future, uh, and then trying to skate to where the puck is going to be rather than where their customers are telling them. It's not never about where the customer wants, right? It is about where the customer yeah, wants, yeah. but it's not what they think that they want no, that's if fine. you are doing something new, right? Your job is to deliver what they need when they can't even articulate that because you're assimilating lots of other information that they're not privy to. Yeah, and I think that's a good way to put it. It goes back to the quote by... I think it's Henry Ford that, you know, if I listen to my customers, they would want a faster horse. Mm. So you have to take that feedback, but I think you have to have the strength to then figure out what's relevant, what's not, mm -hmm. and then iterate. So I do like the fact that you say that, you know, there is this appeal of being an entrepreneur, which I think misses the fact that it's not an easy gig in that sense that, A, your predictive power, what the future is likely going to be is like, I mean, I don't think anyone can predict that. Mm. Yeah. And at the second time, you have this internal conflict where your strength, that vision that you want to create is also going to be your weakness if you don't abide by that's certain right. rules. Yeah, it's, I think that's, that's one reason why I like it. I think it has taught me some great things about myself. Particularly, it's shown me a lot of my weaknesses. And I had to come face to face with those weaknesses. That's been, I think, very good for me. It's also highlighted a few strengths, and it's created an opportunity to engage deeply in some problems. And I think that that has led to an appreciation of purpose-driven business for me and for what that means for my ability or any other entrepreneur's ability to motivate a team of people to take action and to change. And, mm -hmm. and really often that's what the struggle is. That's how we started this conversation, right? How do, yep. you, how do you motivate change from the status quo? Uh, to be able to do that, I, I think, is a particular kind of blessing and curse to be involved in that kind of stuff. But it's a privilege for me to be able to engage in those kind of things, for, for sure. And I'm, I'm, I value greatly my entrepreneurial journey for, for the, the hard lessons that it's taught me, continues to teach me. So is that kind of the root cause of how Unearth came about? Was, was that the, the culmination of that you just wanted to help other people, but you also wanted to continue that kind of learning process, but in a much different way with other people around Ab as well? Absolutely. But I mean, I beat my head against the wall until it was bloody and I wanted to help other people avoid <laughs> the same injuries, right? I think I, I made some mistakes uh, that I thought I could help others to avoid. And in making those mistakes, I learned something about the massive opportunity for digital change that's coming to our industry. And that got me excited enough to want to have another crack. And I had a chat with a couple of other people who also had had similar entrepreneurial journeys, some failures, some small successes, but the passion for learning and for trying to drive change to the benefit of a lot of stakeholders was something that we all felt very strongly about. And we decided that the biggest change that we could make in front of us with the collection of skills and experiences that we had was in creating opportunity for entrepreneurs in driving digital change and resources. So why mining? That's a very good question. I think one simple way to answer it is I was in Perth at the time, and that's what's <laughs> on, right? I, I think it was the biggest opportunity in my backyard. Mm -hmm. I'm from Silicon Valley originally. Nobody there knows anything about mining, mm -hmm. not as a market, not, not even as a source of the things that go into the, the gadgets that they build. Do you find that interesting, that you know there is this 
kind of high-end industry that we somewhat idolize, which uses essentially the raw materials that's provided by an industry that we somewhat loathe in a sense as well. I think that's a particularly interesting problem that we actually have a role to play in, in changing and unearthed. I think, look, I think there are pretty non-exciting reasons for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my colleagues at Unearthed had a, had a go at explaining it, and he, he talked about the distance in direct experience of an industry from most people. So if you think about people in tech, say they're young people coming out of university or they've, they've had a few jobs in tech in nice air-conditioned offices and things like that, the kinds of things that they can experience directly are pretty clear. They walk out of their office building, they want to go somewhere, and they get in a cab and they go, man, this sucks, and they invent Uber, for example, right? It's easy to have that direct yep. experience of that opportunity and challenge. A little bit more distant, perhaps, is things like construction, where yep. maybe the first time they build a house and they get engaged with having contractors do work for them, or they are involved in a new build, they can start to see that industry. How many of them have ever set foot on a mine site or on an oil and gas rig? Right, the number of people who directly experience the operational activities, the challenges of our industry is really tiny. So it's not a surprise. I mean, I always argue that I think mining needs kind of the organic food movement or the equivalent of that. Think about yep. now, like people are very attuned to, you know, am I buying caged eggs or non-caged eggs? Sure. Or like mining kind of needs that movement so people can have some relationship with where a lot of the, the stuff that they're using actually comes from. Yeah, I think, I think that's starting. I think, again, the challenge there is that consumers of things like metals only consume them in finished products. There's nobody out there going, oh, I really want some clean cobalt, thank you very much, because what they care about is that their cell phone works. And so I think that the fact that that value chain has so many parts to it makes that particularly challenging. But we've started to see the big consumers of some of those uh, minerals start to advocate for traceability and yep. sustainability in their supply chains. And that is, that's a fantastic thing, right? I mean, the diamonds industry is a classic example yes. of it, right? Like, well, mean, and, and probably an early one because the consumer actually did say, I do want a diamond, right? I mean, they, they exactly. had a direct experience of that product in a way that nobody's trying to order a ton of iron ore on the internet. <laughs> no, 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 that's why. And I think, yeah, that's, it's a good point that, you know, that like number of steps between the producer and the consumer the closer you can make that, obviously, the better relationship mm. they'll have with each other. But obviously, the further it goes, then call it whatever you want. Maybe it's the curse of affluence, but the more affluent you become, the more steps there will be between you and whatever you use. But there are big consumers who have aggregated quite a lot of purchasing power and in technology companies who are starting to either because of their own interests in that or because of the demands of their end consumers starting to push some of that pressure back onto the suppliers in our industry for those things. So, you know, we see green shoots of that happening. Eventually, I think it's inevitable that, you know, the industry won't be able to hide behind this kind of wall that it's done. I think it will become more face-to-face with what consumers are doing. I mean, if you look at, you know, most industries have kind of gone through that change. So and I always find it interesting that as an industry, I think we should be probably be on the front foot here and do the things ourselves. Because the only other way will be that we will get legislated to do it and it will happen. And it's not that we can't do it. I mean, the diamonds is a classic example. We can do it. Well, I, I mean, I think that's a good starting point. And I, and I think that there are discussions like that happening in, in the industry from various stakeholders. But I think that the opportunity is much, much greater than that. We should do it because it's good business. Because yeah, it's going to create right. a sustainable source of 
things that really add value to our lives. Yeah. And for industry to be so flat-footed in its response to that opportunity and to be on the defensive is actually probably the wrong position to take. And I don't know about wrong, but it's certainly, I think, short-sighted and leaves a huge amount of value on the table. Yeah, yeah, that's hard. I mean, I think you're setting yourself up for some sort of failure at some point, mm. whether it's catastrophic or not. I mean, I think you're going to face it at some point. Mm. What do you think entrepreneurship or that kind of culture is going to provide to the industry? Very good question. Look, I think that the things that excite me about entrepreneurship are, are the, the ability to go on a personal journey, to be honest about things, right? You have to actually develop, as we were speaking about earlier, the honest ability to take feedback, course correct, but also to drive action and change. And I think the power of what entrepreneurship can bring to the industry is a sense of the creation of value on the back of purpose. Mm -hmm. That is, new ventures, many of them are are driven by a vision of the future and become very effective ways of driving change. That's, I think, the perspective of individual entrepreneurial ventures. I think in the aggregate, though, what's exciting is that entrepreneurs build businesses and those businesses, startups in particular, they represent experiments about what's going to work, usually involving a business model and a technology. And the rise of startups that is driven by the ever-reducing cost of starting a new venture combined with the global distribution of digital skills and the reduction in costs of underlying technologies means that there are going to be so many experiments run about how to do things differently. Now, that's really exciting. That means that the number of shots on goal goes, goes way up in the coming years. And so the amount of change that's coming from entrepreneurial ventures is vast. I was surprised, actually, early in the history of Unearth, some colleagues did some research on the number of startups forming to address opportunities in industry. And what came back were these inversely correlated graphs, right? So on the one hand, in Queensland and in Western Australia, the mining capitals of Australia, the biggest contributors to the state's economy were at the top of the chart. Big bar, right? Mining, oil and gas, construction. Down yep. the bottom, arts and rec services. Tiny little bar. But next to that were these bars that represented the number of startup ventures that were forming to address those opportunities. Tiny little bar, tiny number of startups forming to address the biggest economic opportunities <laughs> in their backyard. Lots of people down the bottom building apps for, I don't know, on-demand beer in bottles or tickets for the local music show and finding out about that kind of stuff. Not that that stuff is bad to be working on, but for Australia, that's a concern, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, if our biggest industry isn't innovating, then at some point, you know, we're liable to have some effect because of that. Absolutely. Well, I mean, are we going to have high value jobs in the future is a reasonable question to ask just on the basis of that chart, right? Is Canada going to kick our ass? That's another good question to ask yep. on the basis of that chart. And those are kind of existential questions for somebody. I don't, it doesn't have to be me necessarily, but for people who think about policy mm -hmm. and encouraging entrepreneurial activity in an economy, are concerned about diversifying an economy or digital skills and jobs of the future, this should be at the top of their list, in my opinion. So do you think one of the reasons why like the mining industry has been so slow is that the cost of starting to do something different? Like, you know, if you're a mineral exploration company or something like that, your cost barrier is pretty high for you to get involved. Do you think that's been part of the reason why it's been so slow? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, has it been slow? I think I think there has been a lot of entrepreneurial activity in the history of the mining industry. Mm-hmm. I think there has been some evidence of the adoption of technology, mm-hmm. clearly, in, in mining and oil and gas. And it tends to be siloed, right? I, and I think it would be interesting research to look at why those particular parts of the value chain have, have been where technology adoption has gone quicker than, than other areas. Interestingly, I think part of it has to do with finance and part of it has to do with the approach to technology change that's been taken by industry. One example is automation. It's striking in a negative way that automation still is one of the things that industry keeps talking about as new technology. It's old. You know, the (laughs) moment has passed and others are doing way more in automation than we are. But there was a time when the tier one mining companies and their tier one OEMs got together and said, let's do automation. Yep. But they did that in isolation. And what didn't happen was the creation of an entrepreneurial ecosystem on the basis of excellence in points that contribute to a whole. Mm-hmm. So in trying to tackle the whole thing, from C-suite agreement to C-suite agreement, the capacity to innovate on an ongoing basis was inhibited. Now, where we see other big innovation agendas similar to that, say the original NASA goal of going to the moon, there was a, in some case, deliberate, in some case, accidental creation of lots of opportunities for the different parts of the technology stack that were going to go into creating that outcome. And that did not happen in automation. I think that's a really fair point that the technology that we do develop in mining tends to be in a very closed system in companies. There hasn't been this acceptance to open up the gates, maybe because of control issues. I don't know what it is, but the NASA example is a really good one because they did legitimately open the gates up and said, these are the things that we're going to do. This is the core focus, but all this other stuff needs to happen, which people can have a go at. That's if right. you come up with a great solution, you win. We'll take yours before. That's right. And you can see it now as companies like GE, like General Electric, they have this concept of open innovation where their whole kind of innovation team is a whole bunch of engineers who don't actually develop many ideas. They crowdsource ideas and Mm. then just pick the best ones that they think the company can go forward with. And I think it's quite openly said that they recognize the fact that they're never going to be able to hire enough people to come up with all the good ideas. Mm. So we just have to come up with a way of selecting them. And that's what we're doing now. So I got my my career started at Sun Microsystems in Silicon Valley. Sun was started by a couple of guys, one of whom is Bill Joy. And Joy is now famous for something called Joy's Law, which was basically that doesn't matter the size of your company, that most of the world's smartest people work somewhere else. (laughs) And so congrats to GE, one of the biggest companies in the world, recognizing that there are still more smart people outside their walls than in. But also, I think that they've been reflective on when they get it right, and they don't always, on what their core business is and how to leverage their core business as a platform for ongoing innovation. And thinking about the role that external innovators have in taking risk and doing so cost-effectively. I think people still in big companies leave too much value on the table by thinking probably wrongheadedly about ownership and about their core areas of expertise. Mm -hmm. And they haven't yet recognized how cost-effective it is to watch a uh, diverse community of innovators run all of these experiments Mm -hmm. because their business is more mature. So they should be thinking about the pipeline of technologies at what stage they become mature and how to use their core business as a channel to market for value 
as those things mature to the point where they see the, the results of those experiments. Yeah, and I think it's a misunderstanding of where their competitive advantage really lies. Yeah, mm. I mean, in the GE example, they've clearly identified that their competitive advantage is not in coming up with ideas. You know, as a giant company, you know, their advantage really is in the fact that they can take ideas that they think are good from idea to product and you know, the whole life cycle, they, they yep. can control that. And that's where their yep. competitive advantage should be. So they can let other people come up with the ideas. Hmm. It's highly unlikely that, you know, you and I can come up with an idea and create it at the same scale that GE would ever be able to. Certainly not not when that involves long, complicated industrial processes of, of things where they're integrating this massive orchestration of different bits and parts and software and hardware and all of that within the context of delivering an end solution That's to right. the customer, right? Those are value and supply chains that they have become very good at, at orchestrating. Yep. Uh, and that is a competitive advantage. Yeah. And I think like, you know, understanding of like markets as well, like, you know, how do you market products? What scale? How do you do it? How do you handle geographies? All of that stuff. Mm. Like it's a problem that a startup cannot kind of deal with. So it makes complete sense, I think, for them to do that. So I find it interesting that in mining, we don't have that kind of case study because we think, you know, maybe it's the, I don't know, the arrogance to think that, you know, we can control the end-to-end -end process and we can have competitive advantage through all of it. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I also think that while the industry's been around since the beginning of time, in, a, in its modern incarnation, it the rise of the large industrial mining company hasn't been around that long, and nor has the development of a, a maturing chain of value-creating partners. So perhaps in some sense we're early in that game. You mentioned about the building the ecosystem, and I find this really interesting because I think when people have looked at kind of the skeleton of innovation, essentially what, what it really suggests is that you have to have a big ecosystem because, you know, the real kind of value generation kind of innovation or new products really come from two hunches in completely different kind of ends colliding and becoming something or someone kind of seeing the value in two ideas. Again, like how do you combine? So if you think about it from that point of view, if you wanted to increase the rate of your innovation, then you'd have to actually accept that you'd have to create a big enough ecosystem that's getting all of these different ideas in and hence allowing things to kind of mature and become something. So I, I think, you know, I, mean, I haven't done the work, but I think philosophically it kind of makes sense to me that if you're struggling to do innovation, maybe you should, I think, look at the type of ecosystem you're creating. And if it's like too small or too constrained, then you're probably going to have constrained output out of it as well. Yeah, I think one of the challenges that, like, whose role is it to create that ecosystem, right? We've got distributed accountability across all these parties. <laughs> yeah, There's no yeah. one company who's going to go, let me march in and contribute to the ecosystem around mining. Some have noble intentions, but some of those things are a larger coordinated effort than can be accomplished by a single actor in that itself in that ecosystem. Right? Yeah. And I think we covered this point in one of our previous episodes where someone mentioned that the computer hardware industry, the chip industry kind of got together and kind of set goals that you know, every two years or so, this is the type of technology that we are developing. So everyone out there, this is what you can build your products to, this specification, mm -hmm. this kind of. So and I think that framework or that road path that they kind of came up with allowed people to then have these gates that they could kind of hit towards. Yeah, and in addition, I think that what you're just talking about there is that in the innovation of the hardware components, 
the hardware manufacturers understood that they were part of a platform technology and that others were going to add something in that value yep. chain to the end user, right? And yep. so they, they had an interest in seeing the success of others in the ecosystem, in broadcasting what they were doing to some extent so that others could build to those standards. And I think that's perhaps one area where we could do better is for a maturing value chain for parts in it to say, hey, this is what we're doing with this stuff, and we'd love to see more software developed on top of that stack. I think this is a big opportunity currently being missed by the major OEMs mm -hmm. who are manufacturing fantastic equipment with all kinds of sensors and have completely proprietary lockdown platforms. Their customers are not happy with that, that lock-in, and they have created zero ability for innovation to happen on the back of that technology stack of theirs yep. as a platform for encouraging a whole bunch of other value. And, and it's their economic opportunity to lose as well, right? Look at the app store for an analog and people who have made app stores are sitting pretty on the back of the percentage of revenues of the innovative new things that are developed because they built the platform for the others to create new innovations. Yeah, that's right. And I think that that concept of like platforms, I think completely changes how you look at that value chain. I mean, early on, maybe computer hardware, people realize that, that you know, you're only going to make mm. a chip once, but a thousand people can make thousand different pieces of software to run on it. Yep. So isn't that better that you know you can then have a thousand people using it or thousand times mm. whatever people that want to use it. So I think your comment about the fact that you know service providers or OEMs, we're still a very product driven kind of mindset that, you know, like I'll I'll make a product. The value is in controlling that product as much as I can to get market share in the industry or whatever it is. And then that's what allows me to to get revenue out of it. I don't think people have taken the next leap and go, well, what if we just create a platform that allows different people to come in? I think that's a fair point, actually. Yeah, I think what I'm interested in that underlies that is a bit of the, the difference between technology driving change and business models driving change, mm -hmm. right? There's, there's a lot of ink spilled on the tech change and driving new technologies. And people confuse and conflate technology with innovation. But often real innovation and change happens because of a novel business model. Yeah, I think, you know, in mining, because we deal with cyclicity in a certain way, a company could be innovative in how it hires and retains people mm. during market cycles. Right. That could be an innovation, Absolutely. right? Like, it doesn't have to be that we have to buy the latest technology. It could just be that you could do something slightly different that allows you to... Yeah, you know, in the old days, like you know, WMC was a company that did this, where it sent people on study leave when there were downturns, yep. right? And they retained people because of that. So I think that's a very valid point. That we are sometimes stuck in this mindset that it's like, oh well, the next best technology that's coming in, we got to use that because that's how we're going to be innovative. That's not always the case. Yeah, yeah. What you, what you, the example you gave was a fantastic example of aggregation, right? Yep. They were able to aggregate to them the best labor because of an innovation in their approach. Yep. Uh, and as a result, that could be a competitive advantage for a particular period of time. So, in saying that, do you think that ecosystems in mining have to be somewhat different from other industries, or can they be very similar? Like, do we have to experiment with the type of system that we have to create? Oh, that's a good and, and very broad question, Ahmad. I don't know. I mean, I suspect that the answer is in the broad strokes, it will be similar to every other one. Mm -hmm. And in certain specific cases, it's going to be different, right? I think the, the unique problems that we have to solve will, you know, they require some domain experience there, in some cases, unique to industry. 
But the thematic things, the things that we've been talking about, like business model innovation and, and the like, are common. And I think we can look for examples of that elsewhere and find those examples and analogs that we can then say, how might that impact industry? Or how might we port over that idea of the platform approach or aggregating some part of the value chain to mining? And what would, what would a company that did that look like? So in what ways have you ever given thought to what are some things that would have to be different in mining if you had to set it up? Like, is there some things that are fundamental to mining that other industries don't have to deal with? Uh, if you're asking if there are any conditions that have to change for some of those things to take place, I don't think so. I think it's trying them, right? Like, we see the beginnings of some of those approaches now. We're very excited about them. You know, some we keep close to our chest, some we talk openly about. But I think it's a probably a mistake to think we are so different because we're capital intense, because we operate in remote locations, because of all of these things, and therefore we're not subject to the same kind of structural agents of change as, as other industries. Certainly things will look different in their application, but I think the fundamentals are very similar. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's a cop-out when we say we're this quite unique industry. Mm. I mean, I think we're unique because we haven't probably put our mind to trying to solve some other kind of structural problems that we might have. Mm. So you've mentioned the the concept of like creating these platforms. Is Unearth your attempt at creating one of them? Mm. So you're asking about those things that I might hold close to my chest. <laughs> you know, I think it's despite the fact that we've been at this now for five years, the notion of what success looks like for us continues to evolve. Are we a platform? Are we an ecosystem? Are we a community? Those are all ways of describing specific aspects of what we do. To the extent that some parts of what we do can apply across the value chain, that looks somewhat like a platform. To the extent that we're aggregating something, in many cases right now, we're aggregating digital skill mm -hmm. in a way that can be applied to the particular challenges of industry. Yep. We're now also starting to look across enough challenges from our industry partners that we might aggregate some insights about what those are and where the opportunities are. In that sense, it's kind of a, a platform. Maybe it's, it's more like a, a microeconomy. So your, um, your current focus really seems to be around crowdsourcing. The mining and the production side, I think, has been relatively mm. better at going down that path. And now you're starting to get into mineral exploration as well. Do you think that the, the concept of crowdsourcing, do you think that's a, a fundamental thing that the industry has to kind of accept in some way? Yeah, a fair question. I think, do they have to? No, but I, th I think that the to our discussion earlier about where your core business is and where it is not, what, what is clear is that if you take as a given that there are lots of opportunities for digital change, that is efficiency opportunities in industry to save lots of money, to do things better, to have less impact on the environment, and one of the enabling things to take advantage of them is digital technology and skills, then it becomes clear very quickly that there is a local scarcity problem. That is, everybody on the terrace here in Perth, everyone in Brisbane, Toronto, in, in the centers of industry, people are competing for the same few people with digital skills. Yep. And even mining skills as enrollment in those kind of courses drops. So there's a local scarcity problem for one of the things, the raw materials of driving this change. Mm -hmm. It just so happens at the same time, there's global abundance. So anybody anywhere in the world can learn how to do data science for free from the best in the world. Mm -hmm. 
And even if they don't speak English, they probably can use Google Translate to use those materials, right? Yeah. So on Earth sits at the resolution of that paradox of local scarcity and global abundance. Mm -hmm. That's really fundamental to our business. Yep. What that looks like in particular is that we start to, to be good at connecting verified opportunities, what we call verified opportunities. These are real challenges, operational challenges, mining challenges, process challenges, exploration challenges to people with the demonstrated capability to solve them. Mm -hmm. People with all of those digital skills, startups, third-party vendors, all of whom have something to bring to the table. And often, the fundamental bit about crowdsourcing is that often the answer from across many of those is the best answer, right? Why settle for one answer when you can get the yeah, aggregated the wisdom of view. thousands? And I think like the, the concept there is that by having this thing kind of knock around between different people, you're going to get something that's going to be the most well-formed, yeah, like if you just get an answer from a metallurgist, well, it, it will solve your metallurgical problem really well, but it might not solve like the other mm. problem. But the fact that this thing can kind of bounce around and you get all these allows you to then put the best thing together. Yep. That's that's the real value, I think, out yep. of that, that process. So how does crowdsourcing affect the organizational structures that we would have in these companies? In my opinion, I think that's probably a barrier to companies going down this path. That's very perceptive. Yeah, look, I think... One of the things that we're really fascinated by is that a lot of what leads and what we talk to industry about is crowdsourcing, right? The power of the crowd. What does it mean to have the best answer that the consensus often outperforms any individual answer and that yep. we can put that consensus to productive work? But that stuff has been proven for a very long time. It's actually not that innovative. Doing <laughs> it may be innovative just if it hasn't been applied to industry. Uh, but what's really fascinating is what has to change inside established companies for them to take advantage of that. Yep. So a lot of the innovative work that we find ourselves doing at Unearthed is really about architecting new business processes, new ways of working so that our industry partners can take advantage of that distributed capability that's in the crowd. And that's the hard part. Actually facilitating change inside large cultures because a company is a legal structure, but these entities are made up of cultures of people who have been doing things in certain ways. And the ways that they have been doing them have kind of been filling an ecological niche, right? They have been optimized to do things yes. a certain way. And that's got them to a certain size and success, and we shouldn't knock that, right? The siloing of different specialties in mining has resulted in people being very good at what they do. Yep. But a new approach might be required to take advantage of what we think is a fundamental shift in the underlying supply of the critical commodity, in this case, the digital skills and, and tech required to drive the next generation of change. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just enough to go crowdsourcing is an answer and we can get the best consensus algorithm out of all of these data scientists. Applying that to a business problem and actually doing that in a repeatable way takes engineering of culture, and that's that's hard. And I get excited about that kind of innovation. I think that's a really good point because the reason why I asked the question is because I think it led into this discussion, which you covered really well, is that you know this is not just an organizational structure problem, a resource structure problem. This is also an issue with how you manage your data, how mm. do you handle the concept of value in your business model, yes. all these other things that companies have to kind of mature and understand. It touches on your procurement practices. Exactly. It cuts across silos in the organization from traditional IT function to exploration to 
processing, all of those parts have been linked together in a way to get value in one particular way. Yeah, and that's, that's gotten us to a point, but I think we're on the precipice of being able to get a real change in state by figuring out how to engineer processes differently to get outcomes, in this particular case, from, from taking problems to the crowd. Yeah, that's right. And I think having worked in companies, I think there has to be this conscious effort in changing the fact that you have to allow the ideas to win rather than the, the messenger of the ideas or the department that comes up with the ideas, all of these things, mm. right? What if the best metallurgical problem that you have is being solved by an IT person? Yep. You have to be an open enough organization to accept that actually that's still a good solution, even though it's not coming from a metallurgist. Sure. So that, that's one culture change that's required is just to accept that the best solution might be elsewhere or outside your organization or from somebody that didn't yep. look as you expected them to. Another culture change that's required is the ability to perceive those opportunities. What are the challenges in my business? And to get good at articulating them as challenges and not solutionizing, right? Not going... Yep. Oh, I need a widget to do that thing. Very, Which very Which is a common often, problem. It's right? a common pro And it's a natural tendency. People want to be problem solvers. We're the great tool makers, right? That's a natural inclination. But in being very good at specifying challenges, we have helped our partners to take advantage of the innovation that comes from connecting people with different skills and a diverse set of opinions and limited uh, industry expertise and, and see very fundamentally new approaches to solving problems. And mm -hmm. that's unlocked tremendous value. What do you think the role of like domain expertise plays in this? I mean, surely that's still going to play a role and the dynamics of it will have to change somewhat. The person that's quite on the outside would have, say, a low level of domain expertise will have to train up the same way as someone on the other side. You know, you could have really great mining domain expertise, you know, but you'll have to learn kind of how to talk to someone, mm -hmm. you know, that has domain expertise in the thing that's actually providing you the solution. Yeah, it's a thorny problem, right? I, I don't think it's as easy as a lot of domain expertise is required or a little or, or none is really good in a fresh perspective. I think all of those things, I, th I think in many cases, the the underlying characterization of what the challenge and the opportunity is brings something to that question. But also, you, sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. So in retrospect, looking back, we can go, yeah, sure, it's clear now that the best solution was something that, that just ignored all the domain expertise because we synthesized something that would like was a totally different way of looking at things, right? Yeah. But that's not the only innovative solution to problems. And we've seen things where a little bit of domain expertise combined with a new perspective yields really interesting results, right? Sometimes the operating conditions, you have to know about them because a novel solution has to be able to work in those operating conditions. But that doesn't mean that if you could get rid of those operating conditions, that there wouldn't also be a solution. Right? I, I don't think that there's necessarily any right answer. It's something that we struggle to get the right mix on all of the time. Right now, we're running a competition, for example, where we think that in exploration, that there's a real reliance on data. It's a data-driven part of what we do. Yep. The building of models to interpret that data has so far been distributed into the minds of geologists around the world. Yep. Right? And they each individually make models, hypotheses about where stuff is mm -hmm. on the basis of some data, even if that data is licking a rock. But we have been gathering as an industry lots and lots of data. And there is this particular type of person called a data scientist whose skills are specialized in dealing with data and drawing insights from data. And so 
we think that there will be some interesting things to come out of the application of data science to exploration. I think that that's one of those cases where we still don't know how much domain expertise is required. The, the data scientists, many of the data scientists that we're interacting with in this particular competition, the Explorer competition to crowdsource mm -hmm. exploration targets in South Australia, think that the geos have it cracked. And they look <laughs> at this problem and go, oh no, wow, you need so much domain expertise. Whatever could I bring to the table as a data scientist? And the geos are out there going, oh, wow, these data science guys really know what they're doing and manipulating this data, and they've got all these techniques and deep learning and all this kind of stuff. Probably, we think, at this stage of, of what we're learning, that the best answer is going to come from some sharing, some collaboration between those folks. It's not going to come from data scientists being experts at geology or metallurgy, and it's not going to come from the geos being the best at, at data science, but some amount of domain experience, not expertise, is going to result in some fundamentally new and cool approaches to exploration. The fundamental part of geology is not necessarily the data handling. The fundamental part of it is really the relationships that you should try to, to create out of that out of that data set. So if someone else gets better at handling the data and you get better at finding the relationships out of the data, surely that's a win-win for both sides. I mean, I, I think that's an optimistic view of it. I think certainly there is that kind of learning to be had and collaborative approach to things that would, would unlock new value. But I also think we shouldn't shy away from a discussion in industry about the fact that some jobs aren't going to be required anymore. And that's probably something to celebrate. I yep. think we, we get a bit caught up in that because we do have an obligation to think about people and families and how to plan for the future. Much like we were talking about before, where are the jobs of the future going to come from if we're not investing in innovation and, yep. and understanding digital skills? But to pretend as we build new technologies that those aren't going to displace existing jobs would just be to put your head in the sand and ignore all of human history. On the other hand, the reason that we have the incredible lifestyle that we do here is because of generations before us that have been applying new techniques to getting rid of tasks that we didn't want to do. Thankfully, we don't have to do those things anymore. And, and I think that that process just is a continual process. And, and we have some role to play in that. But I think also like having a bit of humility as a, a geo or as a human being to, to understand that some of what the conditions that underlie some of the things that I did that had value are changing. But my intrinsic value as a human being, especially if I'm a learning human being, doesn't go away because of that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the way I kind of look at it is I think if you still think the skills that you have that had value in the past are the skills that are going to have value in the future, then I think you're somewhat doomed. Mm. But if you think that there's value in you trying to figure out what skills will be relevant in the future, then I think you're never going to struggle in that sense. You know, because as, as much as we talk about a lot of these things, the fundamental part of it is that automation and all these things are really going to remove the repetitive, non-cognitive tasks that we do. That's true, and that's been a great story for industry, but this, the second generation of that that we're on the precipice of is all of the people that manipulate stuff in spreadsheets yeah. that have thought that what they did was cognitively exactly. demanding and that that was a privileged position that they... Robots aren't going to take away. Guess what? Yeah, no, I completely <laughs> That's agree. That's coming faster than the automation of the manual labor tasks in some cases, yep. right? So I think that we owe it to ourselves not to engage in lots of wishful thinking about stuff, but to understand the forces that are shaping us 
the shaping the conditions in which we live, and to try to apply those things to create the world that we want to live in. And I think the other part of this discussion is that do we have to move away from the concept that data has value as opposed to the interpretation or the insights you get out of data? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I hear that debate a lot, Amal, and I think it's it's particularly ironic coming from this industry, mm -hmm. right? It seems pretty trivial that does the stuff that we dig out of the ground have value in and of itself, or does it have value in the creation of something put to human purpose? Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems pretty obvious that the things are interrelated. We got to dig the stuff out of the ground to put it to human purpose to accomplish our our goals. And the same is true of data, right? It's a necessary resource, but it's the application of that resource to productive use that we care about. Insights, anything. Like what insights seem to me to involve a human in the chain making a decision on the basis of that insight. And we're probably going to be past that pretty quickly. Yep. But those things are interrelated. I think the question doesn't get asked in, enough is about why. Like, what are we doing with that stuff? Yep. What is our ultimate purpose? How do we want to accomplish that purpose? That's right. In what way are we going to structure things to take care of the stakeholders in this enterprise that we've got? And, and what are we doing with the energy and the materials that those things generate? I guess the reason why I was saying that is if you look at something like Take Nike as a company. Yeah, Nike, I would argue, makes more money designing shoes than it does actually building them. Hmm? So, and I think there is this concept that you know the more I think further down the chain that you go, the intellectual chain of how you create, then I think there's more value to be kind of generated out there. I think there's there's value to be generated all up and down that chain, right? I think that. I take your point that right now, in particular in our industry, people are engaged in a lot of angst about it's our data. Yeah, We have to hold on to this data because value is going to come from this data. Or the only value is in the data. I think that's a pretty clear fallacy, right? Yep. But nevertheless, the data does have some value because of what you're going to choose to yep, do with it. That's right. And unique data is, is often unique, not, not always. But I think that when people talk in those terms about hoarding the, the data, like, we're not in a position to say, no, all data should be open data, because that's not true either, right? Mm -hmm. I think that, yep. that it actually requires a bit of thought about what are you going to do with that? Where do you sit in the value chain? And what's your business's core business? Where do you want to play? For example, in this exploration competition, we've released more than seven terabytes of data. Right? We've mm -hmm. got all of the exploration data from, from Australia, the public data, plus all of this private data from Oz Minerals. Uh, and some are going, well, how did you convince Oz Minerals to give up all that private data? You think about it a little bit. They hold the tenement. What risk is there to them in the current business environment of somebody finding something in that data? Zero risk, infinite upside. Yep. So that's a pretty clear-cut example where hoarding that data and thinking that the data alone has value or that they're going to capture that value exclusively has held back companies engaged in exploration. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a very simple thing, right? Like they get to benefit from whatever's in the tenement. The data can generate insights yeah. or whatever it is about what's there. They have a huge incentive to 
to have others have a look at that data. This goes to a wider point in exploration as well. And you mentioned the concept of like tenements and you know all of these things. So you can understand from the perspective of a company like Oz, they hold the tenement, they're going to hold the tenement forever. So there's very little risk for them to go down this path. Hmm. But I would even argue that you know if you're a junior company, it's I think probably more critical for you to get as many ideas and test them as quickly as possible to kind of get through what are you looking at the value, I think, is in screening the ideas as quickly as possible and as your targets as quickly as possible uh, so you probably get to the best one that you can. Mm. You know, in a low-probability scenario, you probably have to roll the dice several times to get the right number. So is rolling the dice drilling to find out what's actually there? And, and I think what, what we're seeing is the investment in doing thinky work on the basis of the data may yield competitive advantage. In this particular case, right, Oz Minerals has a tenant, they're going to be able to exploit the consensus opinion from the crowd about where the stuff is. Yep. However, in that crowd are some people who might be engaged in startups for whom the competitive advantage might be the best model for predicting mineral deposits on the basis of data. Now, they have access to a whole bunch of data they wouldn't have otherwise Correct. as a result of this competition. The incentive structure for them might be slightly different. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, actually. The point that you've made, which is quite nice, is that they are different value drivers for each party in that sense. And in some cases, they might be conflicting, but in most cases, they're probably not going to be conflicting, really. Uh, I mean, I think our business will succeed or fail on the basis of being able to figure out how to architect those incentives uh, such that we manage those conflicts and create value for both sides, both stakeholders in that equation. And yep. that's been a driving principle of Unearthed, right? Like yep. We understand that we are delivering value to industry and innovators. And as a result of that, it's a good framework for decision-making for us. And we have to hold tight to that because it means that Thankfully, we can say no to some things that would break that model. Yep. But we attract to us the things that support that model and that give rise to value creation for both parties. In that structure, what skin in the game do you have as Unearth? That's a good question. I mean, our, our business model is fairly simple where we charge industry to solve their problems. Mm -hmm. I think you're probably referring to the part of our business that deals with startups. And we have placed money into startups on behalf of others, and we've got our own yep. skin in the game there. So we certainly do have aligned interests with those startups and want to see them succeed. But so, a little bit of cash from us is not going to, to make or break their company. Do you face any criticism that when you put things like, you know, these kind of new concepts out there where, you know, you as a company then obviously benefits from that structure or that ecosystem being created, do you face any criticism where people think that you're pushing digitalization because... You stand to benefit from it. Oh, I mean, we've we've had some occasional small-minded comments about that, but they're not substantiated by anything. Think about it. Like, do we have to push digitalization in industry? No, the concept is ridiculous, right? Like, is <laughs> is our little organization going to drive the trillion dollars of change that's coming from digital technology? <laughs> exactly. It's laughable, right? Yeah. And to think that in connecting an independent actor like. Oz Minerals, Newcrest, BHP, any of them, to a startup, we are acting in self-service and, and exclusively benefiting from that. I mean, I, I think anybody who understands the amount of value we are creating as on Earth compared to the amount of value that we're capturing would not in any seriousness ask that question. Yeah, no, 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 that's fine. <laughs> uh, but 
look, I, I think that we do have an obligation to think seriously about what what are the the roles of different actors, right? And mm -hmm. in the work that we do in startups, we try as hard as we can to understand challenges so that we can connect industry to startups that have the best solution to those challenges. Yep. And we're trying for a meritocracy. Now, sometimes we don't get there. There's there's subjectivity in what the best solution is outside of some things like the, like data science. The the answer can be subjective, and people have to try some things. And so it's a fair question to ask about if we are only putting forward startups that we've invested in. So that 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 is an area where there's the potential for conflict of interest. Yep. But to date, Unearth has only made investments in three companies, and there are hundreds in our network. And so by sheer numbers, that doesn't happen. I guess it's just as an in industry, I think you often hear comments that some people that are being the the agents of change have some interest in that change. But I always think it's a really myopic argument in that sense that you guys are creating a product, which is the interaction that you want to do between party A that needs a solution and party B that's developing it. If you presented 10 things that were bad for both parties, you will probably be out of business pretty soon, right? So there is a market effect that allows you to exist as a company. And obviously, there has to be some measure of financial interaction. Otherwise, you guys wouldn't exist as a company. No one's here doing it pro bono, right? Where like, yeah, Companies are making money, startups are making money. That, that's an interesting experiment, right? It's an interesting thought experiment. What would it look like if we didn't have any financial incentive in what we were doing? In fact, Unearthed started as a not-for-profit. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Wow. We thought that was the best way to create the change that we wanted to see and to, to create the future for the industry that we, that we wanted to bring about. And you know how many people cared about that? We took that decision <laughs> mostly because we, you know, we had some inflated notion of, of doing the of good, that, doing doing good, and not a single one of our industry partners cared about that. Maybe one did when they thought that 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 they put us in the bucket of donations instead of as a business, and quickly realizing that that was a great way to be pigeonholed and have no potential to actually make the change that we wanted to make. We got rid of that and went, you yep. know understood the value drivers from our customers and deliver value for them. Yep. Can I give you an example? When I worked in the industry, we would have people come to do trials or demos for free. And I ran this experiment to see that mm. I did the demos for free and our attendance was miserable. And then I got the people to charge me and our attendance was through the roof. That's right. People value what they pay for. And, and not only do they value it, like if we actually want to drive change on, the, on behalf of our industry partners, yeah. almost in proportion to what we charge, do they then invest in driving that cultural change we were talking about earlier so they can bed down the innovation into their enterprise and get the results? Now, there's a curve that we haven't figured out yet on where that stuff lies, and I know that we're on probably the wrong side of it at the moment, but, but nevertheless, it's, it is an interesting thing. Right? Yeah. I think that this is something, so I've, I've uh, had roles as a director of not-for-profit organizations driving the startup industry in Western Australia in particular as a founding director of Startup WA and some other things. Mm -hmm. And one of the failures on the ecosystems part of people who are building the startup ecosystems around Australia is to not charge enough for their innovation ecosystem building services. It does not do anybody any favors if you want to run 
a hackathon, for example, where you introduce people to the idea of entrepreneurship and you go to a big corporate and you're asking for a donation to run this weekend long event yep. and you do not articulate any value and you ask for $2,000. You're going to be treated as if you create no value, really. That's exactly right. Why not think deeply about the kind of value that you might bring to those organizations, charge appropriately, build a sustainable business model. Your impact on the ecosystem will be better in the long term. Yeah, that's right. And I think not just the financial viability side, but I think you're taking a lot more importantly, if you ask for an investment, right? Like, I think you get a much better product if both parties have some skin in the game. You know, whereas if you're just asking for a donation, then to them, it's like... It's also not just about the money or how you're perceived, right? The underlying mechanic is actually, to, to come full circle to what we we're talking about before, as an entrepreneur, say... You need to listen. What are you listening for? You're listening for signals from the market about value. And that signal is carried in money. Yep. That's its purpose. It's information about the fact that you are solving a problem. How big a problem? Well, how much are you charging? How much is somebody willing to pay? And does that mean that there's a consequently bigger problem there, right? Money communicates information. And listening to that is important for startup founders, for community builders, for people inside organizations. Mm -hmm. And if you aren't asking the question, that is, if you're not going, is it 50? What do you say about 50? What about six? If you're not <laughs> testing that stuff, in some cases, you have poor signal about yep. the value of what you're doing. And in the, it's critical for startups to get that signal yep. because they will not build a sustainable business or they might engage in wishful thinking about the size of the market opportunity that they are building a business on. And I can tell you, like, if you're going to beat your head against a wall for five, seven, ten years, you better have a good idea about that signal because it's hard. Like, it's almost worse to have some small signal and build one of these living dead companies that just gets enough for years and years and yeah, years yeah. and never achieves breakaway velocity to accomplish its mission. That's a really good point that in order for you to understand whether the, the value proposition you're providing the industry is worth it or not, you should figure out what that value proposition is. And that's really kind of the mechanism that you're going to use. If you go and charge people a million bucks and the value proposition that you're providing if it's not a million bucks, then you're, you're going to stop existing. You'll learn fast, right? Yep. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you'll either go, you'll go broke because no one's going to hire mm -hmm. you. But if you're solving a million dollar problem and you're charging $5,000, that's probably not the best outcome either. Right. Now, there's a, obviously a lot of nuance in that, right? Like if you're going to charge $5,000 because eventually you're going to capture the market and then turn the screws or you're taking value in some other part of the business, right? Yep. In, in a in a business in which you're delivering value to one party, but you're charging another, like an advertising yep. model. There are nuances to that, but in, but in either case, if you follow the money, the money still conveys information about value. Yeah. So getting things like crowdsourcing set up, what are some of the challenges you faced? When you look at, say, kind of like the North American side, especially the Canadian side, they've, they've had a couple of goals at this. In your opinion, is there a reason why we've been a little bit slow in accepting it in Australia? Oh, look, I mean, our business in crowdsourcing is international, right? Mm -hmm. Some of our customers are Australian. Some of them are overseas. The network of innovators we've got is much bigger outside of Australia than in and high growth in, in other markets. So I think I don't have a lot to say about whether Australia is slower at doing that. 
If we look at industry as a whole, there were a couple of isolated attempts at doing crowdsourcing or things that looked like crowdsourcing. And those actually were very good at proving the value of those things, but didn't result in the widespread adoption of that model going yep. forward, right? I guess that's kind of the question. Is like, what, like yeah. why do you think, say like the Gold Corp Challenge yep. was a massive success to the mm, point where the yep. company got bought out. So how come there wasn't more uptake of it? I think that's a really good question. And I think that it's because to take advantage of that kind of thing as more than a one-off showy thing, mm -hmm. we have to change how we work. We have to change internal business processes. We have to change internal cultures. And that kind of thing is, is very hard to bed down and, and can take a while, right? So I think what hasn't been done before is approaching that as a sustainable way to work. How, how yep. does the crowd get connected into your operation as an extension of your company? Mm -hmm. Will the companies of the future not be just these, like we imagine a border, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. This, within this border is our mining company. Yeah. And outside are people who are outside and they're stakeholders. You know, we've got some people over here, they're contractors. We manage our relationship with them through contracts. And we've got these people called procurement that are really good at tightening the screws on those guys. <laughs> those are the systems that we have that govern our ability to be flexible organizations. Yeah. And picking apart those systems and go, who, in whose interest is that in the long run? Perhaps if we architected those systems differently, we'd be able to flex our borders and pull in those data scientists on the other side of the world temporarily and then flex them back when we don't need them. Mm -hmm. And if there's enough of that happening, the data scientists on the other, other side of the world are also much better off. They're not sitting there going, oh, that was just a little bit of work. Or, no, like they've been exposed to data that has been very interesting for them to get their hands on. They've built their skills. They don't just participate in our crowdsourcing competitions. They're not our crowd. They're not out there like, no, waiting no, no. for the next on earth competition they're doing all kinds of things right and so i think one of the reasons that after those individual competitions like gold corp challenge or something that that we didn't see this take off as the way that we work is because that all kinds of companies are struggling to figure out how they work in these new changing conditions how they take advantage of this stuff and it's not trivial to change your entire business culture and the processes that, that you work under. Yeah, and I think that concept that you mentioned, which I think is really the fluid nature of how you're going to have to deal with not just your internal resources, but external resources or relationships or like you know, even something like ideas, you're just going to have to be a little bit more fluid about how you deal with them. And I think, you know, for a long, long time, the mining industry was very good at we do these things and we do them this way because that's what's worked. Yep. And I think now it's just now trying to kind of undo that level of control or the level of systems that we've kind of created. I personally think, you know, having been on the inside trying to talk, it's just that you're talking about a like square peg in a round hole. Like it's just people go, I understand, I see the value, but how do I do it with a shit that's sitting in front of me? Like that just doesn't work. Because you, what we can't do is pull those things out, those existing systems. We can't take procurement and go, right, you're done with procurement, and <laughs> yeah. not replace it with something. Yeah. Right? And the things that we have to pull out and replace are many in that chain in order to get results. Mm -hmm. And so we are now engaged in a deliberate 
scientific process almost to figure out what the important bits in that chain are and how to selectively pull one out and replace it with something better. Yep. And to do that enough times and in quick enough succession that all of those parts start humming together and all of a sudden an organization can take advantage of this incredible asset, which is all of these intelligent people with different skills anywhere in the world working on solving their problems. Who wouldn't want that to happen? Yeah. In my head, I think like philosophically, there's a bit of a dichotomy there that if a company is going really well, then they're probably going to be less likely mm. to kind of tinker with their stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm not throwing shade or anything like that at Goldcore, but I think one of the reasons was that like, you know, they're at a point where they saw the value of doing something new because what they've been doing was not getting them to the point that they wanted. So there's like this really interesting dichotomy here that when you're running well, you should probably be experimenting with this stuff because it's probably going to mm. have less effect on your company because you could cover it different ways. You definitely don't want to do it when your company is completely on its bones. You know, that's like, because then you could just fold the whole company if you get it wrong. That's interesting, but, but often necessity is the mother of invention, right? I, I mean, know. like, have we seen that, Amand? When, when our industry is doing well, is the behavior that we see that industry starts to invest in doing things more efficiently? <laughs> completely the opposite. Completely the opposite. I know. Uh, and the worst thing for some of the trends in innovation that we're seeing right now would be for industry to start going back to <laughs> the golden days of whatever, iron ore at 150 bucks a ton or something like that. We'd throw people at the problem as fast as we could. Yep. That got results. We understand how that kind of system works. I understand what the incentives are there. But I think for forward-thinking companies who have some degree of breathing room now, mm -hmm. the strategic investment in changing process and culture to work differently is going to pay dividends for many years. Just as in the example of the company that you mentioned earlier, when they decided that they were going to compete by retaining talent yep. through the cycles... I know another company like that and I'm fortunate to work with the founder and that does create value over the long term for people. I mean, I always think that you should experiment from a position of strength, really. I mean, you know, like, why wouldn't you? But that involves a change in mindset. Mm. You know, like you have to be comfortable with experimenting, first of all. And I think maybe the reason is that, you know, you have to ha be happy in taking the criticism that we get stuff wrong. But I would argue that your risk in getting stuff wrong when you're doing really well is probably minimal. Mm -hmm. Surely that makes sense. Yep. Towards the end of our interview, we always ask people two questions. So the first one is, what is something that you think needs to die in mining? It could be an idea, a concept, a behavior, anything that you think we need to jettison out of the industry. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, look, I think there's a lot of knowerism in our industry. That is, I think that people, because a lot of what we do involves specialist knowledge, mm -hmm. it takes real training and investment in understanding deeply something to add value in particular parts of the mining value chain, that sometimes that specialty in-depth knowledge can create the sense that we have value because of that investment and we know something. Mm -hmm. And often that's true and, that, and that's valuable. But to the extent that it prevents us from, you were talking about experimenting, to the extent that it prevents us from experimenting or from considering the counterfactual, from considering other things, from considering the, the value of a different perspective, a diversity of opinions, that is inhibiting to people. And it is prevalent in our industry from boards on down, I think. 
And I think we'd all do well to try to get rid of that, that knowerism. And the irony is not lost on me that I'm sitting here on your podcast talking about a whole bunch of stuff as if I know something <laughs> about it. So um, I, I will be the first to say that I'm guilty of this and that I'm grateful to my colleagues in Unearth, to our stakeholders, innovators, industry folks for repeatedly teaching me lessons about the limits of my own ability. And that's resulted in, in me being a better person, right? So I think if we could get rid of so much rampant knowerism in industry, it would be a good thing for all of us. I think that's a really good point. What you're kind of articulating is kind of the curse of being an expert. The more you do things a certain way, the more expert you become in them. But you know, in some ways, you become resistant to then change phase. Yeah, that specialty knowledge makes you fragile, right? Like It's really, really effective exactly. until things change and it isn't. And then it isn't in a big way. I think if we're able to take in change as a regular thing and expose ourselves to other viewpoints more regularly, we can be a little less fragile. We can constantly assess whether our specialty knowledge still applies to a particular situation or not. Here's a bit of a tangent before I ask you the next question. Do you think in our industry we should actively seek people to be deep generalists rather than deep experts? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that the challenge of enterprises is that they are built on being efficient at at solving particular problems. So they optimize around things. Mm -hmm. And that optimization is good and what they should do. But that would be fine if the environment in which they operated was static. But no one's environment is static. So the challenge for organizations, for people, for companies, for all of these entities is to learn, assess, optimize while having some part of your being open to things being different. Mm -hmm. How do we scan for conditions changing such that we need to reassess and act not from the well-honed organizational instincts that we've built, but from new, new things? Things have changed, got to change along with them. How do we cultivate yep. both of those at the same time? So conversely, last question, what is something that you think we should maintain in our industry at all costs? Something that we should never lose or should ever get rid of? Uh, well, this being the exploration podcast, I think that probably one of the things that I've been impressed with is a, a bit of a spirit of discovery. And I, I was you know, new to the industry, did a bit of reading and discovered how much spirit of discovery and entrepreneurial activity there was in the beginning of industry, right? The, the mm -hmm. genesis of industry uh, often was based on people going out and giving it a try, having a hunch, testing some hypotheses, yep. and then trying hard to build a business and create value, right? In the, uh, obviously, there are you know, some other stories out there that aren't so rosy. I'm picking out the features that I like from them. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but I think that we probably shouldn't lose sight of the fact that what we do is valuable, right? All mm -hmm. great human endeavor comes from taking material, mass, and energy and combining them in ways that free us up from the things that uh, held us down so we can move up Maslow's hierarchy and, and accomplish wonderful things, right? And we are in the resources sector at the best of times engaged in just that. Like we need to think about how in the spirit of discovery, we can be better stewards of the world around us, that we can use the material and energy that we've got to create better outcomes and be deliberate about that and celebrate that as opposed to shying away from it or trivializing it. 
I think that's a pretty good spot to end on. Thanks a lot for joining us, Justin. Thank you very much. Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve and Ahmad. This episode was produced by Ahmad, edited by Andy Marr, and recorded at Vision Studios in Perth. If you want to find out more about this podcast, check us out on explorationradio.com or follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And we're even on Instagram. And if you like this podcast and want to help out, well, there's two things you can do for us. Give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And consider supporting us in producing more of this content. You can find the details on how to do that on our website at explorationradio.com support. Until next time, let's keep exploring.